Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Now we're going to jump into our scripture today. We're in Romans chapter 9, verse 30, going to 10, verse 13, uh, as we begin this new series on the Word of God uh, that's part of this larger year-long series we're going to be doing on practices and spiritual formation in the church. What's that look like? What do we do? And we're starting here because we need to know as we begin to study and look at practices that we are secure and firm in Jesus Christ apart from what we do or can do. The practices that we do are meant to lead us to greater Christ-likeness as we are already in him. And so we need to know and have this cemented in our minds that the practices we're going to be doing over the next year, that we're going to be learning about as we talk about formation and being formed into the likeness of Jesus, don't save us and they don't contribute to our salvation, but they move us to maturity in Jesus. And so that's where we're beginning today in Romans. I'm going to invite Terry to come and read the scripture this morning before we jump in. Thank you. Good morning. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over, a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Since Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law, the one who does, does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will go down into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Terry. I was a little bit longer this week, and I realized I plopped us right down in the middle of the book of Romans. And if you know your Bible well, if you know your New Testament well, you might know that Romans is a tricky, tricky book. It's really hard. In fact, you can't really fully get the, the meaning of Romans. You can't really 
fully get into Romans unless you really know the Old Testament, like really well. Now, see, the, the thing about these, these letters, the thing about the letters of Paul is that they are generally understandable. There's this doctrine called the clarity of Scripture. And what that means is God speaks through his word in such a way that we're able to understand the message of Jesus at at least a basic level through the entire Scripture. So the clarity of Scripture says anybody can pick up a Bible, read it, and understand something of God's message of salvation, particularly through Jesus Christ. However, that doesn't change the fact that parts of Scripture are really hard. They're tricky. I'm trying to be extra careful because we've got a Bible teacher in the room right now, and so i, I got to be really on my P's and Q's. Um, and so one of my jobs as a preacher is to help demystify those crazy, weird, strange parts of Scripture, um, but also to marry that with what it means for us in Jesus. The task of preaching is threefold. Let's demystify the word of God. Let's glorify Jesus in it. And let's help you see how your life connects to the message of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And doing those three things all at once can be tricky and difficult when you come to Romans because there's a lot of explanation here. So I've plopped this in the middle of Romans and now I've told you you can't even understand it. So what are we even doing here? Uh, so... The book of Romans is, is really interesting. Here's what's happening. There's this church that has grown up in the city of Rome. And remember, at this time, the Roman Empire rules the Western world. They rule Europe and all the way into the Middle East. And so where our people live, where, where Paul comes from, where the gospel comes from, the people of God, the Israelites have been living right on the edge of the Mediterranean is in the Roman Empire. And so Paul, the apostle, is a guy who's been called by Jesus to go and establish churches and teach people about the gospel of Jesus. His, his role is to be a missionary and to travel throughout the Roman Empire. One of the reasons that Paul is given this role by Jesus is because Paul is a Roman citizen, which gives him free travel throughout the empire. He can go pretty much anywhere he wants. And so he does. He travels all over and he establishes churches. And somewhere along the way, some of his disciples, some of the people that he taught the gospel of Jesus to in some of the churches and cities that he was visiting, went back to the capital city of Rome. And they went there and they started preaching the gospel of Jesus. And they established a church there. Paul had never gone to Rome. He had never been there in order to preach the good news of Jesus. This church just kind of pops up. And these people need a lot of support. They don't have an apostle there like Paul. They don't have a Peter. They don't have a John. They don't have somebody there who knew Jesus and could teach them about the gospel. And then secondary to that, there's a large Jewish population in the city of Rome. A big, big, big Jewish population in the city of Rome. So when these converts to Christianity go back to Rome and they start going into the synagogues and preaching the good news of Jesus, they're getting a lot of pushback from Jewish people. A lot of pushback from people who are like, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's too good. <laughs> Your gospel's too good. You're telling us that we don't have to obey every command of the law. You're telling us that the law doesn't save us. And so when Paul writes the letter to the Roman church, he's writing to a mix of Gentiles, that is non-Jewish followers of Jesus, and some Jewish followers of Jesus who are facing pressure from the synagogues and the Jewish community in the city who says, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're, you're teaching wrongly. And Paul is writing this letter to help them. Remember, they don't have an apostle. They don't have someone who's really been taught and trained. 
And so the book of Romans, or the letter to the Romans, is like the most theological letter in the New Testament. It has a lot of heavy concepts and heavy ideas. And it really is teaching kind of a foundation to the faith, which has made the book of Romans a very polarized book in the history of the church, and specifically in the moment we live in right now. A lot of people really love the book of Romans. They love it. And a lot of people really hate it. Because some Christians have taken the book of Romans and used it to clobber other people. We call those clobber passages. They're all over the Bible. Passages that when they're taken out of context, someone can use to really put down and abuse other people. And Romans has a lot of those. But then other people love Romans because it's Paul is talking a lot about holiness and fighting your sin and turning down sin. And so Romans is this really book, this is a book that like a lot of people are, are kind of on the fence about. Because Romans as a letter lives in tension. It lives in the tension between the righteousness, the holiness that is ours through Jesus already, and also calling us to faithful obedience to Jesus as we follow him. And that's a hard place to live because a lot of Christians want to live in one of those two places. A lot of Christians want to live in a place of legalism, which is here's your list of rules, here's your list of laws, follow these, God will love you and accept you, and it makes it easy. Honestly, legalism is an easier way to go than actual faithfulness to Jesus because I've got a checklist. And if I got a checklist, I know how I'm doing. I can evaluate myself and I can know how God feels about me based on this checklist. Legalism is attractive because it's easy, but it's also shame building because we're never living up to that checklist. And so that's the real danger of legalism. That's the pitfall of legalism, is it puts all of our righteousness and goodness on us and our performance and our ability to measure up to this checklist over here. So at once it's easy, but on the other hand, it is incredibly shameful and shame-inducing. A lot of Christians love legalism because it's an easier way to go. And because then I don't have to worry about the mysteries of God, I just live according to my checklist. A lot of other Christians like to live in what's called antinomianism. I know that's a big word, right? Antinomianism. They like to live as though there are no standards for Christians. I'm in Jesus. I'm declared righteous through Jesus. Now what I do and how I live doesn't really matter as long as I'm trying to be like the Jesus inside my head. And so they live as though there are no expectations. We actually had that argument in this church about four years ago. I wanted us to create a community covenant, a set of expectations for our members. And one of the people in the church came to me and said, Pastor, I don't see the word expectation in the Bible at all. I don't see any expectations in those verses that you gave us. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, Jesus expects things from us. He has called us to obedience. Jesus himself says that explicitly in John chapter 14. He says, if you love me, you will obey me. The great commission itself, Jesus says, go out and make disciples, baptizing them and doing what? teaching them to obey all that I've commanded of you. And so some Christians like to live in legalism. So other Christians like to live in a place of antinomianism. That is, there is no law. There are no expectations on me. I'm in Jesus, and that's all that really matters. I prayed my prayer. I go to church. I'm good. What I do besides that isn't really anybody else's business. And the, the faithfulness of, of the Christian life, the, the faithful Christian life lives in the tension between those two things. 
It lives in the tension that says, I am righteous and holy in Jesus. I have been forgiven of my sins. I am called righteous by God because of Jesus apart from what I can do. But now that I've been called, now that I'm there, my whole life is oriented to becoming what God already calls me. The Christian life is about becoming the righteousness that God has already called me through Jesus. It's about living in faithfulness and obedience to him to become like him because God already calls me that. It's entirely aspirational. It's completely like God says I'm good, therefore I want to be good. God calls me holy and righteous, therefore I want to be holy and righteous. I want to walk in that. I want to become more like Jesus. And living in that tension is very hard. That's exactly what we talked about last week. We talked about Christians, the people of God, the nation of Israel, as the people who struggle with God. We struggle with God because being faithful to God and living in a broken, fallen world is hard. And it's not as easy as a checklist. It's not as easy as a few laws and rules that I can measure myself by to know if I'm good with God. And the gospel of Jesus honestly complicates it. And that's what the whole book of Romans is about. So now we've situated where we are in Romans. The whole book of Romans is about understanding the relationship between God's law that he gave in the Old Testament and Jesus, who has come as its fulfillment. And so there are, unfortunately, nine chapters before we get to where we are today. And you really got to know something about those nine chapters to understand what Paul's doing here. Through those nine chapters, if you read it for the first time, it feels like Paul's flip-flopping. Because all through those nine chapters, Paul is saying, you're righteous in Jesus, but you better be killing sin. You're righteous in Jesus, but turn over your sin to him and live a righteous life. You're righteous in Jesus, therefore live a holy and God-honoring life. And it can feel like he's flip-flopping if you don't understand that tension in which we live. And then we get to chapter 9 and 10, and Paul really lays down his argument here. He really lays it all out for us by going back to the Old Testament and doing what all good rabbis do. So let's start in chapter 9, verse 30, where Paul's talking about the situation as it stands right now. He's saying, what should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. This is good news. Gentiles, you non-Jewish people, you've, you've become righteous through faith. That's amazing. But Israel, that is Jewish people, the people of God, pursuing the law of righteousness has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. Here's, here's the argument Paul is making, and it's radical if you've grown up in the world, in the synagogue, in the Jewish world that Paul is living in right then. The radical message of Paul is that God has never worked by legalism, ever. A lot of us in the church, especially who have grown up in the church, especially in certain traditions, we imagine God worked one way in the Old Testament, and he's worked a new way in the New Testament. And he's gotten rid of what's old, and now the new has come, and so we live under the new, and we don't worry about the old. What Paul is saying here is there's a continuity. God's character has never changed. God has never worked by legalism. He's never bartered with people. He's never made agreements with you. If you'll just obey, then we'll do this. Or he's never worked that way as a condition of receiving and accepting people. God has always worked on the basis of faith and grace. This is baked into the story of Israel. The law comes 
after God has delivered the nation of Israel from Egypt. The law comes after God has called Abram out of this pagan culture. The law comes after God chose Isaac, his son, and Jacob, the heel grabber, who we talked about last week, his son. Before they could do anything to merit God's love or favor, God has called them. God gives grace, then sets expectations. Always, throughout the whole history of the people of God. The good news for us is that we are saved by that grace. We are saved by that faith. We are brought into God's people by that faith. And what we do then doesn't change our status in God's people. It doesn't change our status as one of God's people. And so Paul is saying here, the the problem with Israel, the problem with the leadership of the nation of Israel and the Jewish religious system of this day is that they thought they could earn what God had always given by grace. They thought that they had to obey the law perfectly in order to be accepted and saved and held by God. They thought they could get by works what God had always given by grace. That's exactly what he says here in Romans 9. And Paul is doing what all rabbis do. He's looking to the past and he's saying, wait a minute, we've misinterpreted. We've misunderstood. And now in light of Jesus, we have a better understanding. We have a a better clarification of how God works with us. And so anticipating the objections he's going to get, right? He's talking to a bunch of Christians who are like being influenced by the Jewish community in Rome who are going to say, no, 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 you obey, therefore you're one of God's people. Paul anticipates their response to this. The people saying, no, 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 that's not how God works. And he does this weird thing to us. He does what's called midrash. Midrash is when a rabbi, a Jewish teacher, would interpret this text and interpret the scripture for his students. That's really what it is. Midrash is just commentary and interpretation of the scripture done by a teacher of the law, done by a rabbi of the faith. And so Paul is a good rabbi here. He anticipates the objection and he goes back to the Old Testament to pick out two texts that these Jewish opponents might use to say, no, 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 we are made right with God by our obedience to the law. And so Paul picks out the two most prominent passages in the Old Testament that they would use to say, nope, we're saved by our works. First is Leviticus 18.5, where Paul writes in chapter 10, verse 5, since Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law, the one who does these things will live by them. That's Leviticus 18.5. It's in the middle of the law books of Israel. And so Moses, the lawgiver, Moses, the leader of the nation, writes this down as he's giving out the law. And he says to the people, the one who obeys these will live by them. The one who does these things will live by them. And Paul's using that as a counterpoint. He's saying, Moses said that. And then he goes on to quote, Deuteronomy chapter 30. And this is where he gets into his midrash. He he takes these verses from Deuteronomy 30, he breaks them down. And he shows how, rather than being a, rather than being an instruction in how to obey the law, that you must obey the law for God to receive you, he shows how they point to Jesus. And so he begins with, do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven? That's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 4 where God is talking about the law. He's talking about the law that he's given, God's word. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 4 and 5, what we read is Moses writing to the people, 
God telling the people, hey, these laws I've given you, they're not too hard to obey. If you'll only keep them in your heart, if you only study them, if you'll only try, you can obey them. It's not beyond you to obey the law of God. And then in verse 30, verse 4, Moses writes in Deuteronomy, who will go up to heaven to bring it? What he's saying is the word of God is already with you. You don't have to go up to the mountaintop to get it. And then he's going to say in just a second, you don't have to go down to the depths to get it. It's not hidden from you. It's not under a rock. It's not up on top of a mountain. It's not at the bottom of the ocean. It's right here. I've given you my word. Here's what you do with it. That's what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Paul now takes those verses and he says, wait a minute, what Moses was really talking about wasn't just the word of God that you had, wasn't just the law of God that you had. He was talking about Christ. He was talking about Jesus. What he's saying is, you don't have to go up on a hill, you don't have to go up on a mountain, you don't have to go to some inaccessible place to reach Jesus, he's right here with you. You don't have to go down to the depths, to the bottom of the ocean, to a place you can't get to in order to find Jesus, he's right here with you. These verses are about Christ. Christ is the nearness of God's word for you. He is what you need. And that's where he says in verse 8, on the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you in your mouth and in your heart. When the Old Testament uses words like that, when it uses language like that, it's in your mouth and in your heart. What it means is it's an integral part of you. It can't be separated from the rest of you. It's in you. It's there. We, in our Western world, man, we, we compartmentalize so many different things, and so we tend to compartmentalize our faith over here, and our politics over here, and our job over here, and our parenting, or our family life over here, and we, we separate them all out, and we separate our knowledge of God from our knowledge of the world. We talk about, you know, theology and science, or we talk about philosophy and science. We, we've compartmentalized all these different things. In this worldview, in, in the Hebrew worldview, in the ancient worldview, there's none of that, right? Everything is one. Everything's interconnected. It's all right there together. And so when the Bible talks about having something in your mouth and in your heart, what it means is it's integrally a part of you. It's not some separate thing from you. It's within you. It's there, right? And so when Paul says... Jesus isn't far away. He's not on top of a mountain. He's not at the bottom of the ocean. He is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. What he's saying is the Spirit of God is right there with you <clears throat> all the time. You don't have to go on some like spiritual trek out in the wilderness to find it or to find him. You don't have to go a walkabout out in the like, Australian outback to find the spiritual center. He is near it's called the imminence of God. He is imminent. He's with you. He's there all the time. And Jesus, the very word of God made into flesh, is accessible to you. He's always with you. This is the message of faith that we proclaim then. Paul's saying, based on this, based on the fact that Jesus isn't inaccessible to you, but he's right here with you, here's the message of faith that we proclaim. It is as simple as this, Paul is saying. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. 
since there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the message of the gospel. This is the entirety of the good news of Jesus brought into just a few verses. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Now this goes way beyond intellectual agreement with the history of these events. This is one more place where we really got to get in the mindset of the people Paul's writing to and talking to. Because to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord in this time and place is to commit treason against Rome. Nothing short of it. The persecution of the early church in the early days wasn't a religious persecution. We've talked before about the persecution of the early church and the persecution of the church in the first few hundred years. And we always imagine it's this religious persecution where the Roman Empire just didn't like Christianity as a religion. They didn't like Christianity as a religion because everybody was saying Jesus is Lord. And if you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying Caesar ain't. He ain't my king. My king is Jesus. And to say Jesus is Lord is a capital offense because it is treason against Rome. It's treason against Caesar. It's treason against the king of the empire. The persecution against the church in the earliest days was a political persecution. So when Paul says, hey, you guys who are living in Rome, in the capital of the empire, all you got to do to be saved is say Jesus is Lord with your mouth. This is not some like internal conversion that happens in my heart that's a private matter. This is something that happens in community, that you live out in community, that you speak publicly. When Paul says to Christians living in Rome, if you just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and then comes the interior part, you truly believe, you have trust in, you have faith in, Jesus actually rose from the dead, then you will be saved. This is a counter-cultural treasonous confession. It costs everything. Everything. When you say that, you lay it all on the line. Because that's what Jesus is worth. That's what Jesus is worth. Losing everything. And in a world where following Jesus costs us almost nothing, it is almost impossible for us to truly understand that sacrifice. We can say Jesus is Lord all day long. and It doesn't cost us anything. But for these people living in Rome at this time to say Jesus is Lord is to commit everything into his hands, to entrust him with everything I have, with my life, because I could be crucified for this. And Christians were. Paul himself, for sharing this message that Jesus is Lord, would be crucified in Rome within a couple of decades of writing these words. Because of his confession that Jesus is Lord. The Apostle Peter would have the exact same thing happen because of this confession, Jesus is Lord. For us, to say Jesus is Lord is not just words on our lips. 
It has to go far beyond the sounds and the vocalizations that come out of our mouth. For us to say Jesus is Lord is to say my entire life is in his hands. All of my trust, all of my hope, all of the direction of my life, absolutely everything is in his hands. Jesus is Lord. And if he is Lord, he is Lord over me and over my life and over my decisions. It means everything is brought before his feet and laid down. I don't make big life decisions without coming to him and asking for his counsel, seeking what he would have me do. I don't make any decisions without thinking about how it's going to impact the glory of Jesus and the proclamation of his gospel. I don't make a decision in my life without thinking, if Jesus were right here with me, what would he be saying to me? How would he be leading with me? How would he be walking with me? How would he counsel me? To say Jesus is Lord is to lay it all down at his feet and say everything is yours. Everything is yours. And to trust that he has my life in his hands. To trust that he is good and he is right and he is just. And that he will not lead me into a place of destruction. That he will embrace me. That he will hold me that he will walk me through all of the difficulties and trials and struggles of this life. And when I'm looking at Jesus, when I'm laying down everything at Jesus' feet and I'm looking upon him as Lord, I think of Revelation chapter 4 and 5 where we see the throne of Jesus. You ever read Revelation 4 and 5? You get into the throne room of God and there's all these symbols of power. There's all this, there's waves of power just coming off the throne. We're told that there's this, this big sea out in front of the throne of God, and it's waves, it's turbulent, it's rough, and it's rocky, and that's because of the, the glory and the power of God that is radiating from the throne. And we see all this imagery that would just make you pee your pants if you actually were there. Like all this stuff that is terrifying. And then when we get a glimpse of the actual throne, on that throne, we see a slaughtered lamb. We see a God who has laid down everything for us. We see a lamb who's given up everything, not owning all the trappings of power and not lording it over and not oppressing us as the gods of the other nations would do, but a slaughtered lamb that says, come to me and your sin is dealt with. The Jesus who, when he was walking on this earth, said, come to me and take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we come down and we lay everything down at the feet of our Lord Jesus, we can trust that he has our best in mind. We can trust that he will lead us into good places. We can trust that he has good intentions for us and for our lives because he's the only God, the only Lord, the only king who ever stepped down from that throne and was killed for us. When we lay down our lives before our Lord Jesus, we're not coming to a tyrant. We're not coming before a dictator. We're not coming before a God who says, here's your checklist, keep it, or I'm going to kick you out. We're not coming before a God who has treated us with legalistic requirements to earn and keep his love. We're coming before our slaughtered King Jesus who laid down his life to deal with our sin. And when we look upon the beauty of our King Jesus, how could our hearts want anything less than to be like him in every way? 
the call, the call to obedience, the call to, to follow Jesus faithfully and to obey his commands is not a heavy, oppressive burden. It is the deepest desire of a heart who has looked upon the beauty of our crucified king, our risen king. The call to obedience is the deepest desire of anyone who has looked truthfully upon Jesus, seen his character, seen who he is, seen how he's lived, seen how he's given himself for us, and says, that's what I want to be. That's who I want to be. More than anything in this world, Jesus, make me like you. More than anything in my life, Jesus, make my character like yours. May I treat and love my neighbor as you have treated and loved me. Not in self-righteous condemnation, but an open-armed embrace, laying before them the good news that our good King Jesus is the King and the Lord who has laid down his life for you and doesn't hold a heavy burden over your head, but has already once and for all dealt with your sin and will never cast you aside once you are in him. That's the good news of Jesus. That's the king that we follow. That's the person that we want to be like more than anything. And as we embark on this next year talking about formation, talking about practices that we do, I want you to know and understand and own that before anything else and know that whatever we ask you to do, however you, you are called to pray and to study scripture and to invest in your own spiritual development, it's not so that you can have a good place in God's family. You already have that. It's so that we can pursue this great ambition of becoming like Jesus together. That's why Jesus calls us to faithfulness. That's why he calls us to obedience. It should be the longing of a heart that looks upon him honestly and truly and sees him as he is. And so today is the day to renew that commitment to Jesus. Right now is the moment to renew or to make for the first time that commitment to our king, to look upon our crucified, risen king, to know that he has dealt once for all with our sin and that he's covered us completely to invite us into God's family. And so I'm gonna pray over us and I'm gonna invite you in this moment to pray, to renew your faith, to renew your commitment to Jesus or to look upon him for the very first time and know that he, open-armed, welcomes you in love, having already dealt with your sin so that you can be like him. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you are the word made flesh, Jesus, that you are the word near to us, that you are the end of God's law, you're the point of it, you're the completion of it, you are the perfection of all that is righteous and holy. Thank you, Jesus, for giving yourself to us. Thank you, Lord, for empowering us to be able to say with our mouths, Jesus is Lord, and to believe in our hearts, to know that you have risen from the dead and offered us the life that you have. Thank you, God for calling us together in this place. Thank you for giving us access to the throne. Thank you that when we look upon the throne, we don't see a tyrant, but we see a slaughtered lamb who reigns over his people with mercy and with grace. 
who doesn't give us a heavy weight to bear or a burden or a load too harsh for us to carry, but instead says, welcome to my table. Come and be like me. Jesus, we long to be like you, to love like you, to live like you, to sacrifice like you. And we lay our lives at your feet today, asking that you would give us a greater measure of faithfulness in the days to come, that today would be the day that we love you least for the rest of our lives. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.